developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Billions of people have vision problems, and vision is more than 2020. Vision Beyond Sight will help you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Your vision does not define you, you define your vision. With Dr. Lin's new way to look at your life through a new lens, you will be ready to meet yourself and receive visualizations for miracles to come. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Lynn, and welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Today, visiting with us is my friend and colleague, Dr. Noah Tannen. We're going to talk about myopia or nearsightedness control and management. Just a brief bio on Dr. Noah. He grew up in New Jersey, and he very early in his life saw the transformative power that vision therapy had on his patients and ultimately chose to join his father, Dr. Barry Tannen, in practice at Eye Care Professionals in New Jersey. Dr. Noah completed his residency in pediatrics, vision therapy, and neuro-optometric rehabilitation at Pennsylvania College of Optometry at Salis University. He was accepted in the Academy of Optometry in 2018 and also has his fellowship in COVD, College of Optometry and Vision Development, from 2020. Dr. Noah is very uh, well known in this field and he's received the Optelect Low Vision Award for Excellence in Low Vision while at SUNY Optometry School. Dr. Noah in his young age in practice is already co-author of a book called A Parent's Guide to Raising Children with Healthy Vision. He specializes in vision therapy, neurooptometric rehabilitation. And today what we're gonna be talking about is especially in myopia, control and management. His mission is to maximize the visual potential of his patients and enrich their lives by helping, helping them to achieve their full potential. So welcome again, Dr. Noah, to Vision Beyond Sight. Thank you so much, Dr. Lynn, for having me back and for pro- providing these valuable resources for your audience as well. So That's thank you. great. My pleasure. So let's just jump into myopia. Let's you know, make sure our entire audience understands what is myopia and then talk about myopia as a global epidemic. Absolutely. Myopia is more commonly known as nearsightedness. And in essence, the the eyes or the vision is sighted for near. So the distance vision typically gets blurry in nearsightedness. And the focal point of the eye or the point of clarity travels closer in space to the eye, making, making it so that reading is typically more clear. And as the number of the prescription gets higher, that point gets closer. And this is an issue that has been increasing at an alarming rate worldwide. And we've known about this for many years. And optometrists, especially developmental optometrists, have known about this and have been doing what they can to prevent these trends. But the trends have been accelerating rapidly, especially through the pandemic. And that's why I wanted to take the time to discuss this with you to hopefully increase the awareness even more and get patients the help that they need in order to slow this process down. So the types of numbers we're looking at in this country, for instance, if you look at the research, A few decades ago and around the 70s, when they first started looking at the prevalence of nearsightedness, they found about a quarter of adolescents were displaying nearsightedness. And when I was a child, that seems to align with my uh, memory in that maybe one in four children in my class uh, would, would wear glasses in order to see the board clearly. Recently, when we've revisited those stats, we found that the numbers are closer to 50% in this country. So they've increased considerably. And it's concerning because it's even worse in many other parts of the world. 
specifically a lot of regions in East Asia, for instance, in Southeast Asia, China, Taiwan, Singapore have some of the highest rates of nearsightedness worldwide, as high as 80%, even 90% in some populations. And this has far reaching implications, which we'll go into a little bit more, but probably in my opinion, the most concerning statistic is when they look at these trends into the future and what sorts of numbers we'll be seeing down the line. And there's an interesting study that by around 2050, it's projected that roughly half of the entire world will be nearsighted at that point. And by 2050, there's anticipated there will be about 10 billion people on the planet, which would mean about 5 billion people are nearsighted. And the researchers feel if something's not done soon, about a fifth of those people, 1 billion people, will have significant complications that could potentially threaten their sight. And this would obviously have a huge impact on quality of life, but also on healthcare burden and on the economic impact that this issue is gonna have on, so, on worldwide population. So those are some startling um, statistics. And what's really interesting, what I see, you know, being nearsighted is no big deal anymore. They have oh. cute glasses and contacts and everybody thinks, ah, you know, I just need my glasses. And so to put the label of epidemic is amazing because it's kind of one of those things you just expect. But what we'll talk about later, I hope you'll, you know, include some of the complications and some of the challenges. And those of you who are really nearsighted. Uh, know what it is, you know, to get up in the middle of the night and you can't even see where the light for the bathroom switch is. Or if you lose or break your glasses, you feel helpless. So I'm sure you'll go through some of the signs and symptoms in that time. But I did want to ask you about, you know, your stats. You said you thought about one out of four and now it's 50%. But will you kind of talk about, you don't see that statistic in kindergarten, I mean, you don't see that many kids wearing glasses in kindergarten, but you might see it in sixth grade. So what, what about the progression of um, how it significant changes over time? That's a great question. The single biggest predictor of how high the prescription will end up, and, and the magnitude of the prescription is very important, is the age of onset. So how early the nearsightedness starts is the single best predictor of how high it will end up. And typically nearsightedness is not something you're born with. You can be born with it, but we're talking about school age nearsightedness, which typically presents sometime in the elementary school years or even middle school years. And some people aren't nearsighted at all until college and you'll find even adult onset nearsightedness. But the concern is that the the age of onset is getting lower and lower, and the prevalence of new cases is increasing rapidly, especially throughout the pandemic. And this is something that researchers have looked into is what impact has quarantine had on the prevalence of new cases of nearsightedness. And in the six-year-old age group, for instance, that you just mentioned, new cases of nearsightedness are three times higher now than they were just a two or three years ago before the pandemic started. And in seven-year-olds, it's twice as high. In eight-year-olds, it's about one and a half times as high. So the numbers, the, the age is starting earlier. More kids are starting earlier. And we the, the trends I was mentioning were all determined prior to the pandemic. So it'd be interesting to look at what the projections look like now with this new data. And a lot of people think, oh, well, it's just genetic if a child is prone to nearsightedness. And absolutely, there is a strong genetic component. If one of your parents is myopic, you have about a 25% chance of developing nearsightedness. And if both of your parents are myopic, you have about a 50% chance of developing it. But the impact of genetics alone does not explain the rapid rise that we're actually observing. So we have to look to other causes. And we found that there's a complex interaction between genetics and environment and behavior. 
And it's the behaviors and the environment, which is the cause of the acceleration that we've seen. So there's long been a known correlation between near work and nearsightedness. Those you mean near, near work, like studying long periods of time, small print, computer, things like that. Exactly. So screen time, studying, high scholastic achievement, and even level of education have all been strongly correlated with higher amounts of near, nearsightedness. And it's hard to say, is it the near point stress of those activities that's accelerating it? Or is it some other cause? And like everything in life, I think it's a combination of multiple things. I think the stress that's put on the visual system, just from reading and studying and focusing your eyes, is accelerating the, the rates of nearsightedness. But what researchers have found is maybe even a bigger role is the amount of time that children are spending outdoors. And that has gone down significantly over the decades. In terms of how much time I spent outside or my parents spent outside, children these days are spending much less time outdoors. In fact, I saw a, a depressing study that found prisoners in the United States have more time outside than most children. And that's because they have mandatory times when they have to be in the prison yard. And I think that the near work, the high scholastic achievement, and especially, and I can't underscore this enough, the screens, while they might be directly impacting the rates, they're also what keeps children indoors. Uh, most screens like video games and computers, YouTube videos, social media, those are the kinds of activities that kids are doing in their bedroom or in the comfort of their house. And they're interacting with their friends through these mediums. So there's no reason for them to go outdoors and ride their bike to their friend's house and knock on the door or play outdoors because they're still interacting with them. And this is a whole nother topic, but these tech companies that create these applications and the social media, they have algorithms and they have the smartest people in the world working on these algorithms algorithms to purposely make these activities very addictive. And to the developing brain of an adolescent, it's extremely difficult for them to recognize that that's what's happening and also to be responsible enough to develop healthy habits. You know, if I could just, you're speaking about the lack of outdoor time being important. When I was a student, like 40 plus years ago in optometry school, we used to do vision screenings in the schools around Pacific University. And Pacific is in Forest Grove, Oregon, which is really farmland country. Great wineries, great, great farmer. Uh, you know, we used to ride our bikes and get all the, the uh, fresh uh, zucchinis and pumpkins, you name it. And that's what the kids did after school. They went out and helped their families farm. So when we did our screenings, we hardly found any nearsightedness. And we're reading these studies about, you know, one in four and how it's increasing. And we don't believe the studies because our population, our little unique population in Oregon, in farm country, isn't showing any of that at all. And I found that so fascinating because when we did a screening then in Metro Portland or the main cities, we found very similar findings like you're speaking about. So the outdoor time is crucial. So let's take all of that and think about what happened in this pandemic. And we all know the kids were on the screens, but go ahead and continue. You know, they weren't outside. They were not outside. And unfortunately, there's been a, a shift in parenting and in what's considered the norm or acceptable. And when I was a child, my parents, I mean, I played all, all different kinds of sports, but also my parents would let me go outdoors alone. I'd, I'd, drive, I'd ride my bike around the neighborhood and I'd have no oversight. And they say, just be back before it gets dark or be back by dinner. And I think a lot of parents now don't exactly feel safe allowing their children to go out independently like that. I don't know if um, culturally things are any less safe or it's just a shift in perspective. But when you look at the research throughout the pandemic, 
things like screen time have more than doubled. And that is, again, it's due to part of it is people want to stay safe from disease, from COVID-19. So that's one reason they're not getting outside. And also a lot of schools have shifted to virtual instruction or hybrid instruction. So academically, they have to use the screens a lot more than they used to. And there's a stat that I recently read that kids that are in middle school are now on screens about seven hours per day or more. And that's more than double that it was prior to the pandemic. And to your point, talking about where you grew up in the farming communities, you, there's a lot of interesting studies that support what you said. You can look at Inuits in Alaska, you can look at native populations in Papua New Guinea, places where they subsist entirely outdoors and the rates of nearsightedness are about 1%. It's virtually non-existent. And nearsightedness throughout human history has been virtually non-existent because for the majority of human history, we were farmers and we were fishermen and we were hunters and we were outdoors to survive. And that's where we evolved. And this is really only a new issue of the modern age. And it, in fact, glasses for nearsightedness, not for reading, because glasses for reading were invented probably in ancient times, in ancient Egypt, because that is a, an inevitable process. But for distance vision, glasses that you could wear were only invented in the last couple hundred years, you know, kind of co coexisting with the Industrial Revolution. So there's just a lot of interesting data supporting this. And that's why it's pretty clear cut what the causes are. And hopefully we can correct those causes soon before it becomes too much of an issue. So this really is a man-made disease process yes. um, and correcting it takes a shift of belief and mindset by all means. I, I joke with some of my patients, um, all of this stress and, and screens in Nearpoint has really created a huge field of optometry for us to deal with all of these issues. And another field that has really arisen in this time, if I was an optometrist, I would consider being a thumb surgeon between texting and, and using our, th our, our hands were not made to do that kind of technology. And so many people have wrist and finger and shoulder problems as well. So these are environmentally stressed issues that we're creating. And now we're trying to backtrack a little bit and see what can we do. And um, after our break, we'll talk about what can we do to be preventive or at least slow or stop this progression down. Um, but why don't you spend a little bit of time to talk about some of the risks of myopia besides people, again, people who are nearsighted already know some of the problems of not seeing well or squinting or headaches, but what are some of the other risks that a lot of people don't realize could be associated with progression of myopia? Well, there's a lot of risks. And one thing that I think people, at least in our culture, take for granted is that while nearsightedness is not always viewed as such a concern, it, a lot of people in the US at least just think of nearsightedness as, oh, well, my child needs glasses and they can accessorize and they can match it to what they're wearing. They look cute, like you said, but that's not the case in a lot of parts of the world. In fact, nearsightedness is one of the most uh, prevalent, preventable cause of vision impairment worldwide, because not everybody has access to doctors or to even eyeglasses or laboratories that can fabricate eyeglasses. So that's number one is the, the worldwide impact is a little greater than what we see in this country. And what children have told me, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, sometimes they come in needing glasses and it might even be impacting their academic performance because they can't see the board in class. But when they start wearing glasses, it might change their perception of who they are. And it can have psychosocial impacts as well in terms of self-esteem and in terms of increased reliance on needing to wear them in order to function well. But the most concerning risks, which I think is what you were getting at and what concerns me the most, is the actual medical impact or pathological impact it has on eye health. And 
there's various complications that are more likely the higher the amount of nearsightedness. And one of the most common things that we're aware of is the risk of retinal detachments. And the retina is the sensory layer on the inside of the eye where the photoreceptors are. But what happens in nearsightedness is the eyeball is actually growing out of proportion. The length of the eye known as the axial length is elongating. And that's why the focal point or the area where the, the light rays come to a, a point to give clarity to the vision is landing in front of that retina because the eye is too large, it's overpowered. And the larger the eye gets, the more stretching that can occur in various regions of the eye and the more damage that can eventually occur. And the retina can stretch and it can tear or holes can develop. And the most concerning um, side effect would be if the retina detaches. That can, if not treated properly, can lead to blindness or permanent vision loss. There's also stretching that occurs in the optic nerve. And that's the cord that takes the information from the eye to the brain. And when stretching or damage occurs in the nerve, that's what we call glaucoma. And glaucoma can affect your peripheral vision and it can lead to blind spots. And again, if left untreated, can lead to blindness. Also, it can cause stretching or damage in the macula, which is the area of central vision. And it can lead to something known as myopic maculopathy, which is a form of macular degeneration or a disruption, disruption in your central vision. Some of these things have cures. Some of these things just have treatments and there's no good cure. And like I said, in some parts of the world, they don't have access to good healthcare. And that's why this has such a large impact on those populations. And in my opinion, the single best treatment, and I think probably everyone would agree with this, is prevention. So if we can prevent the numbers from getting to that level, then we're going to reduce the risk of these complications from occurring. Right. And they are serious complications. Luckily, they don't happen often for the number of people we have. But I think uh, going back, you had mentioned also some of the psychosocial issues, and that is significant. Uh, you know, now, again, because they've made it cool to wear certain glasses, there's less of that. But we've had patients, I'm sure you've seen this, Dr. Noah, that will hide their glasses, who will... Um, show such behavioral resistance of being called four eyes or dorks or whatever kids call them. And it has great, great impact. And I know through the years, I've worked with teachers trying to have them read books like Arthur's Eyes mm -hmm. and how cool it is when Arthur, the, you know, the whole series of books, Arthur's, whatever. Uh, and that's been helpful. But I also wanted to plug one, um, professional football player that I've had great fortune to work with is Vaughn Miller. And um, Vaughn Miller used to be a Denver Bronco. His heart, I believe, is still with the Denver Broncos. He got traded, but he's a, an all-star um, linebacker. And Vaughn grew up wearing glasses and he remembered how ugly they were and how much he hated them. So as a professional athlete now, he has created what's called Vaughn's Vision, which is a nonprofit. And his goal is to provide glasses for uh, kids who are low income. And maybe they can get a pair, but he wants them to have multiple pairs. He wants them to have, have a social presence that they're proud of. And so we've been uh, really fortunate that uh, he used to hold some of his clinics at our office where we'd get extra optometrists and opticians, labs would help support that. They'd bus in kids from the boys and girls clubs and around the Denver metro area so that we could do free exams and then they'd get free glasses and they get to go to the Broncos football stadium to get their glasses. So it was a big deal. And the times when Vaughn was in my office, I had immediate turnaround of some kids saying, I'll do my vision therapy because Vaughn thinks it's cool. I'll wear my glasses because Vaughn. So the Im impact that 
a single person had just talking about the importance of glasses. And if you look at Vaughn when he plays football, he usually wears his contacts. But when he's done, he almost always has a new pair of glasses. And he brought some of his glasses. Um, there were at least 50 or 60 of them. He has special special boards that he keeps all his glasses because it's a real social item for him. So he's turned that whole concept of how terrible it is to wear glasses into being cool and really be strong and wearing them. So, so I thank Vaughn. I hope to get him on the podcast as well, but, but you've really touched on some very important areas, social areas. Uh, Dr. Noah, we're going to be taking a break here in a minute. And when we come back, we're going to really jump into the treatment and prevention side of myopia. Absolutely. Sounds Great. good. Thanks. Discover the power of the seeing brain, the creator of your true vision. Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's number one bestseller book, Expand Your Vision, helps you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Remove roadblocks and visualize your new lens to see and experience your world. Get Expand Your Vision on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Welcome back. This is Dr. Lynn and welcome back to Vision Beyond Sight. Today we have Dr. Noah Tannen with us who's talking about myopia or nearsighted management. And we spent the first part of our podcast really speaking about um, the epidemic of myopia and how the incidence of nearsightedness really increased during the pandemic. And it's too early to even tell long-term impact because we're living it right now. So the studies are just beginning to come in. And we also discuss the environmental versus genetics um, impact on nearsightedness. But let's spend the last part of the podcast talking about what are the treatment options and how can we hopefully prevent many of our, our young kids and, and ourselves from getting worse? Well, that's a great question. And the, the first thing in prevention, in my opinion, is what you ended the last segment with, and that's raising awareness. So I'm so grateful to have role models like Von Miller, who's able to increase the awareness and actually encourage kids to wear their glasses, but also to educate parents about the effects. And I think the more role models we have that are speaking about this publicly, the better it will be. Because if parents aren't even aware of this issue, it's going to be very difficult to get their child help, number one. Now, some demographics are very aware of this problem. Typically, East Asians and Indian patients, they're very aware of this because they've seen the impact in their native countries. And it's actually the governments of those countries are so acutely aware of this issue. They've gone to the extent of making schools outdoors in some cases. In Singapore, they have nature kindergartens. In China, they experimented with making schools entirely out of glass. And that's to increase the time spent outdoors. Could I stop you for a minute and ask you, you had mentioned that, especially in the Asian populations, there's such a high incidence, higher than other areas. What are the thoughts on why that is? That's a great question. I'm not entirely sure. There's some um, thoughts about why that is. And I don't know if uh, the genetics play a role. I assume there is a genetic component. They might be more prone to it for whatever reason. But there's certainly environmental components in those cultures that I think could explain the higher prevalence that we see. So typically, and I don't want to make sweeping generalizations, but on average, those cultures place a very high emphasis on academic achievement. And they are starting school at younger ages. They are usually in enriched programs at very young ages. They start to read at very young ages. And that, I think, has accelerated the rates in those cultures. And also a lot of those cultures tend to be, um, the population centers tend to be very urban and dense. A lot of them live in cities, less so uh, they live in the countryside or are farming these days. And those cities are mega cities and they have less outdoor spaces, more pollution. 
Uh, and the children have reduced exposure to sunlight for those reasons, and also less opportunity to spend time outdoors in a lot of those cities where they're growing up. Also, a lot of tech innovation is coming out of those cultures. They tend to be at the forefront of, of the, the new technologies that we see. And so a lot of those cultures are also perhaps a little more addicted to screens, believe it or not, than we are in the US. So I think it's multifactorial, but they do definitely have higher rates. They start earlier on average and they progress a little faster. And that's been demonstrated in the research. So when I have these conversations with people, the first thing I speak to parents and patients about is what they can do on their own to slow down the process. And we already spoke about it a lot, but it's spending more time outside. And the researchers have found that the magic number is about two hours per day or more, ideally. If you can be outside for that amount of time, a lot of times that will prevent the onset or at least delay the onset considerably. Unfortunately, the research also points to once the process starts, it's pretty difficult to slow it down just with behavioral changes. But there are definitely ways that you can achieve that. Um, in addition to spending time outdoors, I go over very concrete rules that I'd like the children to follow that I think if they can implement will be very beneficial for this. And it's one thing to say, I'd like you to spend less time on your screens. But if you don't tell them specifics, then no change is going to occur. So I will tell them specifically, I would like you to practice good visual hygiene. And I want you to do the 20-20-20 rule, which a lot of people have heard about. Every 20 minutes, you take a short 20-second break and you look 20 feet away. And I actually modify that. I usually tell people to take a longer break. I'll say take a two to five minute break every 20 to 30 minutes. And ideally go outdoors if you can, or at least look out of a window. So Dr. Noah, how do you get a, like a 14-year-old avid reader who will sit all day and read his books to do that. Cause they're not going to remember to do that. What, tri what tricks do you use for that? Well, you're absolutely right. Especially those kids that love reading and they see the pictures in their head when they read, they lose track of time and you can tell them many times to take breaks and it's probably not going to happen. So I will enlist the help of the parents first of all, but I like the kids to be responsible on their own. So I'll try to give them tips that they can utilize in order to follow these rules. So I might tell them to use a timer, set it to every 20 minutes. The best thing I found if they're willing to do this, especially when it's nice weather out, is I say you can read as much as you want if you're reading outdoors. So now it's summer, it's a heat wave. I tell people to go to this local swim club or to find a nice shady spot under a tree and spend as long as they want reading outside. And you know, I that's, think that's that a great fun. idea. Yeah. Uh, the other thing I have found is I'll have them get some fun markers, book markers, so that, you know, each chapter or two for, they think it'll take 20, 30 minutes. As soon as they hit it, it covers up the print. And that sometimes will like, oh, I need to at least look out and look away for 20 seconds. I'm happy. <laughs> That's a great idea. And so usually those kids are pretty receptive. It's the kids that you have more trouble with are the ones that aren't the, the avid readers. They're the avid technology users. They're more difficult to reach. So I will tell them very specific things to do. Like for instance, if they have work to do or homework or studying, I tell them no screens, at least none that they don't need for their work. So the phone, for instance, I say should not be in the same room with them. It's too distracting. Even if the phone is off or if it's in another part of the room, if you can hear it or you can see it, it's been shown to lower productivity and increase the time it takes to finish tasks. And also usually tasks are finished with more errors just by the presence of a phone. So I say, it's not enough to turn it off. You have to put it outside of the room. And, and usually that's something very concrete that they can do. And I have the same rule when, and, and this, these rules I always tell parents apply to the whole family. 
because they need to set good examples as well to parents. I say no phones when eating or at the dinner table. Even if the child is eating alone, I don't want them on a phone just because it's a bad association to link something that's addictive like phones with something that's pleasurable like eating. You get almost a classical conditioning response. So I say no screens at mealtimes. And one of the most important rules is no screens before bedtime. And I say at least one to two hours before bed, I want the phone in a place where it's not even accessible to the child. Because a lot of people and adults are guilty of this too. The phone is the last thing they look at before going to bed and the first thing they pick up when they wake up. And that's probably the worst habit you can have. And that's a tough rule because when you talk about modeling by the parents, mm-hmm. the parents have their phones at the table, the parents have their phones going, you know, before they go to bed. And so it takes a real family commitment to make a shift. That's the hardest part because the parents a lot of times have to use the phone for work. But even my parents' generation, they're getting really into social media as well. Um, you and I were speaking about this earlier. I just got married and you were telling me you love seeing all the pictures, but it's funny. It's my parents and my wife's parents. They're the ones who are posting all these pictures and they love getting the comments and the likes and they're on their phones, believe it or not, more than I am personally. There's something not right about this picture, is it? (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Well, um, I know you'll have some more tips, but I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about the types of glasses and contact lenses utilized in both, you know, helping people see better as well as the preventive care. So when those things don't work that I just mentioned, then it's time to actively intervene on the part of the practitioner in order to reduce the progression of this nearsightedness. So there's a few modalities that have been shown to be very effective at achieving this. There's there's no treatment right now that will stop the process completely. In some cases it does, but that's not the goal. The goal is to significantly slow down the progression of the nearsightedness. And you can do that with glasses, you can do that with contact lenses, or you can do that with medicated eye drops. So we'll start with glasses. The old way of thinking and uh, This is what optometrists did for many years was they put children into bifocal lenses. So there's a reading portion at the bottom with increased magnification. The thought process being the more we reduce near point stress or accommodative stress, aka focusing stress, the less likely the eyes will need to become more nearsighted in order to see clearly for near tasks. And That's been shown to be effective in just a very small subset of patients, typically. Uh, Patients that have tendencies to under-focus their eyes, also known as accommodative insufficiency, or over-converge, known as convergence excess, and especially the combination of those two, have benefited from bifocal glasses to slow down the nearsightedness. But in most kids, we found that that's actually not so effective. And there are new glasses that are created that are on the horizon. They're not commercially available yet, but they have different optical properties, which show a lot of promise at reducing the progression. But since those aren't available right now, it's hard to know just how well they'll work. But theoretically, in the near future, there will be an option just using glasses to prevent nearsightedness. The options that I personally use, and I think most doctors around the country use, which has been a little bit more effective, are specialty contact lenses. And there's two main type of specialty contact lenses. These are not the normal type that most people wear during the day. They are, uh, one of them is an overnight version and one of them is a daytime version. And they work by very similar mechanisms. So what they are, are essentially what we call multifocal or bifocal contact lenses. And typically these were reserved for patients in their 40s, 50s, 60s and above who needed help with reading. And the near, the contact lenses focus near light in order to allow people to see both far away and up close without the use of reading glasses. 
we found when we fit children into similar contact lenses, the optical properties of the light that is entering the eye through these contact lenses has been shown to significantly slow down the progression. And it's changing the light rays in a way that cannot be changed just from traditional glasses or traditional contact lenses. And just by changing the way the light is entering the eye, you can actually almost trick the eye into stabilizing so that the cells in the eye that produce growth signals, which is what increases the nearsightedness, are turned off or inhibited. And there's, we can go into more detail about specifically how that works, but it gets a little complicated. So for anyone who's interested, I'd recommend that they take a look at the book that I co-authored, A Parent's Guide to Raising Children with Healthy Vision. It's available on Amazon. That goes into a lot more detail about the actual mechanism of action for how these glasses work. But for now, the simple reason is it changes the way the light enters the eye. And That's a great information. I encourage parents to get that book. What age would you, well, what's the youngest age and the oldest age, you know, that, that you fit people in those types of contact lenses? In my opinion, there's no minimum age. And I typically, the youngest patients I have treated are as young as maybe four years old with the contact lenses and you enlist the help of the parents, but they, a four-year-old is more than capable of wearing contact lenses successfully. And so I'll treat anyone that age or above. And adults are candidates for these lenses, but I actually am very hesitant to treat adults unless they're showing progression. Because at that point, to me, it becomes a medically necessary treatment. But if they just want the ability to see clearly without the use of glasses, there's other means to achieve that without going to the extent that is needed to fit these. Because the contact lenses do require additional training and materials and expertise in order to fit successfully, which is actually why you'll see the majority of eye doctors don't fit these contact lenses. Um, only a, a small portion do. Typically the developmental or pediatric or behavioral optometrists uh, fit these lenses. So I will fit adults into them, but only if it's necessary. But um, children, even younger than four, does not mean that they don't need intervention. It's, it might be difficult to treat them with contact lenses. And the, some of these contact lenses, like the overnight version, it can be a little bit more expensive as an initial cost to, to fit these. And also the lenses, the overnight version of these lenses are a rigid lens. So they last for a couple of years, typically one to two years before you replace them. And that's not the best idea to give to a young child just because they can break them more readily. So for a young child, I will favor pharmacological intervention in the form of medicated eye drops. And every doctor is different, but for me, I usually will utilize that temporarily to get control of the prescription until they're old enough to transfer into one of the contact lens modalities. And all of these forms have been shown to be about equally effective. The reason I try to avoid long-term use of the eye drops is because a small amount of it, and it is a very dilute dosage, by the way, but a small amount does enter the bloodstream. And the type of drug we use, it's an anti-muscarinic drug called atropine. Uh, some people might've heard of it because it comes from the belladonna plant and it's been used for many, many years to dilate the eyes routinely during optometric exams, but it's been shown to cross the blood brain barrier. And so I don't know personally if this medication has been in use long enough for this purpose in, in terms of daily administration for the goals of reducing the prescription in order to fully know what the side effects are long-term. So while I think it's personally safe and I think typically the only side effects are perhaps short-term like blurred near vision or redness of the eyes or light sensitivity, 
I use it as needed. And then I try to switch them over to what I consider to be a less invasive intervention for these children. And some, some parents may just see that we start with just a pair of glasses that could be very part-time. A lot of times parents will say, you need to put on your glasses and wear them all the time. And often that is not the case. They're, the child is often doing great with no glasses for all their near work and maybe need it to see the board or they go to the baseball game and see you know, the scoreboard, things like that. So, so it's really important that parents get educated on nearsightedness. Mm-hmm. And do you have some tips and questions? You know, how do parents find a doc like you that will discuss these options at great length? I mean, we haven't even gotten in depth on fitting a lot of the contacts and, and the types of lenses, but mm-hmm. it takes time. You can't get an eye exam in five or 10 minutes and have all these options to explain. So how does a parent find somebody like you to really discuss all these options before they proceed on, do I use the pharmaceuticals? Do I use the contacts? Which contact and what about glasses? Well, it is key that you're going to someone who has experience with this and has treated people. Because like I said, unfortunately, and I hope this changes soon, but not all eye doctors correct these issues. And especially um, commercial optometry or retail optometry like lens crafters or Pearl Vision, they don't, they don't typically fit these contact lenses and they make a lot of their profit by selling glasses. So they don't have any reason for them, any motivation to fit these contact lenses since a lot of these um, retail locations, they also own the, con- the, the glasses brands. And so a lot of times they'll give you discounts to come in just so they can sell more glasses. The good news is there are large companies like Johnson and Johnson and Cooper vision that are understanding this and trying to make this more accessible to the general population and to general optometry. And so they've created more commercial forms of contact lenses that a lot of doctors are starting to fit. So one of those would be the MySight lens, which is a a daytime soft multifocal lens specifically for this reason. And it's very easy to fit and it's very accessible. So you can go on their website to see who fits that lens. And that's FDA approved now. Not all of these interventions are FDA approved. Some of them are used off label, but that's one of them. There is an overnight version that just became FDA approved through Johnson and Johnson called ability. And you can go on that website to, and they have uh, features that allow you to search for a doctor that fits these. But if you want someone that actually specializes in this and has every modality at their fingertips to choose what is best for your child, because not every option is best for the needs or lifestyle of each patient, then there's other resources that will uh, show you doctors that fit all different types of lenses and, and all different dosages of this eye drop. And there's a good organization called the American Academy of Orthokeratology and Myopia Control, AAOMC, that will en- enable you to locate doctors that way. And those doctors through that website are accredited for this. So it's almost like a board certification. Any one of those doctors can be trusted. And then for the overnight version, each one of those companies also have search features. For instance, I fit a lot of uh, patients into a design known as wave contact lenses. And you can go right on the wave website and find which doctors are certified in fitting these lenses. And just a, a quick note, Um, about how these overnight lenses work, because I didn't exactly go into detail. They work optically the same as the daytime lens, but you wear it to bed as a retainer lens and remove it in the morning. And you don't require any glasses or contact lenses during the day to see, because it reshapes or molds your eye into the shape that is necessary to both correct vision and reduce the progression. And so that might fit better for the lifestyle of certain patients, like a child who's a swimmer or an athlete 
is not going to do well with soft contact lenses because there's a risk if those come into contact with tap water or chlorinated water. And they do better with the overnight retainer lens because as long as they wear it nightly, it corrects their vision. A college student who's pulling all nighters and not getting good sleep is not going to do well with the overnight lens because it is sleep dependent and they do better with a daytime version. That's why you want a doctor who's really experienced in this and knows what's the best for your kid. Well, thank you, Dr. Noah. As uh, our listeners can see, it's quite a complex field and it goes beyond just give me glasses to see. And there's great opportunity to make a difference for yourself and your kid's vision. So I encourage you. And if you'll look at our show notes, uh, Dr. Noah's sent us all those uh, links so that you can check out some of those links for yourself and uh, find a good doc to help advise you and, and really do what you can to be not only preventive, but make sure that you give yourself and your kids vision for life that's clear and healthy. We're, we're about at the end of our time now, Dr. Noah. So if you could share with our listeners how to contact you if they have questions, as well as you have a, a class you wanted to share in your book. Absolutely. So I already mentioned the book that's on Amazon. And if anyone would like to contact me directly, you can go to my office website, which is iCareProfessionals.com. And there's forms to contact me. And also, if you're in the New Jersey area, feel free to set up a consultation with me. And if you're a practitioner who's listening and you want to implement this into your own practice, I strongly encourage you to check out Supercharge Your Practice Workshop, which is held by my partner, Dr. Despotitis. And it, it's, he's been doing this for many years and has a lot of success in teaching other doctors how to do this themselves successfully. Very good. Well, I thank you again. It's always great to have you back and you're just full of such wisdom and knowledge and, and thanks uh, to you and your office and to everybody else. I appreciate you listening and remember your vision doesn't define you. You define your vision. And thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye Thank now. you so much, Dr. Lynn. It's always a pleasure to speak with you. Great. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today on Vision Beyond Sight. Join Dr. Lynn Hellerstein each week to help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Remember, your vision does not define you. You define your vision. For more information and find additional podcasts, visit lynnhellerstein.com. See you next time on Vision Beyond Sight.